Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The L.A. Rams. I mean, sure, people are talking about them, but not nearly enough. Not only the Rams, but how about Football City, USA? The Chargers are 5-2. and two. In and of themselves, they'd be an amazing story. But they're taking a back seat because of the absolute juggernaut that is Sean McVay's Rams, who went out yesterday and body-bagged the 49ers on alumni weekend, no less. You never want that to happen, but you especially do not want that to happen when Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, and the entire gang is in the house to watch that. And what they saw was the Rams drop a legendary ass-kicking on the once-proud 49er franchise. And they did so in pretty much the most disrespectful way possible with brutal efficiency. Where to start? Jared Goff only threw it 24 times, still put up 200 yards and a couple of scores. Todd Gurley only carried it 15 times. He had three more TDs. None of the Rams' ridiculous wideouts had 80 yards. The offense basically decided that 39 points was all they needed and then just pretty much stopped. I mean, honestly, have you ever seen a quieter 7-0 team? Has the team ever rolled into somebody else's house, beat the hell out of them by 29 at a time when every single legend of that franchise was right there to see it and then go home like it was not even a thing? Nothing at all. And if you thought this L.A. team was scary, racking up its first half dozen wins, while the son of bum got his business in order, yesterday the defense went out and it wrecked house. Aaron Donald had a season in a day. Check the stat line. Nine tackles, eight solo, four sacks, six tackles for loss, five quarterback hits, and one of the most disrespectful, abusive takeaways in the history of the National Football League. Rita back in with the first and ten pitch. And hit by a ton, including Mark Barron, who allows him just to gain a two. Rich out to the 22-yard line and a shove after the play. Well, what happened was Aaron Donald rips it out. And, he, and it somehow, not only does he rip it out, but he's able to hold on to it. Watch, the he rips it from his, his arm, and he's got, it right, he's got it right here in the pile. And that's an amazing play by the Pro Bowl defensive tackle. And that's why you pay him a lot of money. Well, that's why you give that guy a blank check and let him fill out the amount. What a monster. With one arm, this guy holds off a blocker, makes a tackle, and rips the ball out of Matt Breida's arms and into a perfect one-arm tuck. It was so swift, so sudden, it took everybody a moment to figure out exactly what the hell just happened. Like, how did that dude do that? How is that possible? Well, that's what Aaron Donald does. He makes people say, how did he do that? How is that possible? Remember this spring when Donald was out there hooking idiots on April Fool's Day, fighting off rubber knives and working pass rush drills. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could put a couple of actual butcher blades into the hands of the Niners' offensive line, and it still would not have been a fair fight. There's not a more dominant team in the NFL right now. And yes, the Chiefs and Patty Big Gun might be the most exciting squad in the league, but nobody is as ruthless as the Rams are. I have lots of thoughts on the Chiefs, which I'll get to, but I want to start with the Rams. They're 7-0. They're a plus 107 on the season in scoring differential, which is nearly 30 points better than the next best team. And again, again, these guys are only now starting to figure out how to play together on the defensive side of the ball. 
to tell you how dominant they are. They're eight and a half point favorites next weekend against Aaron Rodgers. That's the biggest underdog that Aaron Rodgers has ever been in his career. And the way the Rams have it rolling right now, that's a line where you almost expect the money to come flooding in on L.A.'s side. I mean, wouldn't you make the argument that if they're going to win, they're going to win by more than eight and a half? Super teams are not supposed to work in the NFL. My man Trevor Price has told me that every single week on the RPO podcast. They're not supposed to work in the NFL. Then again, dudes like Sean McVay are not supposed to be handed talent like the crew less needs stack for him. Seven wins in. And maybe the most surprising thing is it all feels like clockwork. They're seven or no. Football City USA is 12 and two. Do not sleep on the Chargers. And the last undefeated team in the NFL is only now hitting its stride. 7-0 and not getting enough run. 7-0 and not getting enough credit. The Chargers are 5-2. and Sure, they had a little bit of help in England. But they're not getting enough run. We go more than two decades without football, and all of a sudden this is Football Town USA. Football City USA. 12-2 and if you need any of us. We are joined by the head football coach of the Mountaineers, Scott Satterfield. Scott, great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You guys were a great story, so I want to get into it. You beat Louisiana 27-17 in a game where Darrington Evans rushed for 183 yards and a touchdown. You also had a receiving touchdown. Given that you had lost running back Joe and Moore to injury, how pleased were you with the performance that you got from Evans and the way he stepped up? Uh, yeah, very pleased with, with the way Darrington stepped in there. You know, he's a very good player, dynamic player. I think start of the season this year had a 100-yard kickoff return versus Penn State. So he's got a lot of speed and a lot of talent. We felt good about him going in. Just the one thing we didn't know was could he carry the load, and, and he certainly did that, getting 26 carries and uh, had an outstanding day. And, you know, we'll have to ride him throughout the rest of this season with the, with the Moore to Jaylen, uh, injury to Jalen Moore. Scott Satterfield joining us. So he got the 26 carries, and that was a new career high for him. So he did respond. And as I mentioned, that means the team is now ranked in the AP poll for the first time in school history. Given your background and the fact you've been there before, what does that milestone mean to you personally and to your program? Well, I think it's uh, it's great recognition that we're able to get this. Uh, you know, first time in school history to be ranked. Uh, you know, I was here when we were at FCS, and we, we won three national championships, and certainly we're, we're ranked number one at that point. But as I say, we're at the varsity level football now, you know, with the big boys. And uh, to be able to be ranked like that, that's, that's pretty good at recognition. But like we told our team, that's something to embrace and to be proud of and, and really for everybody that's been a part of this program. But, I mean, it's not going to win – win a game for us for, against Georgia Southern. I mean, so all our focus obviously has got to be on them this week. But uh, but I think it is a great milestone for our program. You know, we were the first um, team uh, here when we won our first bowl game, uh, you know, three years ago. And we won our Sun Belt Championship two years ago. So we've done, we've done a lot of firsts over the last three years. This is just another one. And hopefully we'll continue to, to break records in positive ways. Scott Satterfield joining us. We're talking App State football. You know, you've done those things. But I think that the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds when they think of App State is that great win over Michigan back in 2007. You were an assistant on that team. What do you remember about the confidence of your team heading into that game? And then what do you remember most about the game itself? Well, I think, you know, we, we had just won a national championship in 2005, 2006, and so we had a really good football team coming back in 2007. And, you know, Michigan's coming off a Rose Bowl victory. We're like, holy crap, they're, they're really, really good. But matter of fact, we didn't even show them any film of Michigan. We kind of just we showed them a film of, what, of us doing our practices and that type of thing, but we didn't want them to see Michigan so they'd get intimidated. But 
So we, we had a great plan going in and uh, just executed very well. Armonte Edwards, our quarterback at the time, a phenomenal player, probably one of the best players ever to play here at Appalachia State, and uh, had a great game. You know, comes down to the wire. We end up kicking a field goal on third down uh, to take the lead, and there's about a minute left in the game with Chad Hennett, quarterback, Mario Manningham, receiver. They hit a, a long bomb on us, and then we blocked the field goal in dramatic fashion to win that game. So it's a special day, and really – that is the game that put us on the map, no question. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And that, that backstory about the fact that you didn't even show them film is incredible. <laughs> you know, it may have put you on the map, but if that had been the only highlight for your program, it would still be an iconic and legendary moment. But the fact is, the program had a lot of success before the Michigan win. You've had even more success since that. So how do you explain why App State has been such a powerhouse, been able to pull all this off? Well, I just think, you know, obviously it starts at the top. We've had, over the years, we've had great administration, uh, chancellor, athletic directors, uh, and just great people here. This, this place here is, is kind of isolated up in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, you know, we're, we're close to 18,000 students now. Um, so not a huge school, but great size. And, and really, uh, we have a great following. You know, we, we've led the conference in, in attendance the last two seasons. And, uh, and the, the tradition, tradition that we've had over the years is, is unbelievable. And we just continue to build on it year after year. Uh, since we made the move to F- FBS, we've been able to recruit um, at, a, at a higher level, talent-wise, uh, and now we've created some depth, and um, you know we just continue to to gain confidence over over every year. And so, um, I think all of it kind of helps, and all of it snowballs, and and now we're you know continuing to escalate to new heights. If you're thinking about going to a live event, you need to check out my pals at Vivid Seats first. With Vivid Seats, a brand new sponsor here, you can attend the concert, the show, or sporting event of your choice and do so at a great price. Here's what I like about Vivid Seats. It is the top source for tickets for all the live events that you want to go to, and you can sort by price or look for the seats in the section and the row of your choice. And to make it even better, Vivid Seats is reaching out to you new customers and will give you a promo code, which will give you 10% off your first ticket order so you can save even more money. Here's what you do. You go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers, make sure you use the promo code Rome and get 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every single purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Make sure you download that app and enter the promo code Rome and get 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime. Let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Vivid Seats, this is a great company with an awesome proposition. Check it out yourself. Vivid seats. We're talking App State football. Head coach Scott Satterfield's my guest. You know, I know it's not easy. Nothing's easy, but you've made it look easy. That transition to FBS football, and as you mentioned, you're able to recruit a different type of athlete. But again, it's not easy. In fact, the way you've done this, you could have done it by taking easy schedules, but you haven't. For instance, your season openers the last two years were Tennessee and Georgia. You took the volunteers to OT, and then you did the same thing to Penn State to start this year. A lot of schools in your position would not want anything to do with those challenges, but you run towards them. Why is that? Well, I think when we made the decision to go to FBS, we really wanted to um, you know, get our schedule in a, in a way that would, would really entice our alumni and our fan base to really become engaged with our program. And we feel like, you know, that, that for us to be able to play those type teams is going to continue to garner attention to our program. And, uh, you know, we've hosted Miami in here. We've had Wake Forest come to, come to our stadium. Uh, you mentioned Tennessee and Penn State. We've, we've gone to Clemson and played those guys. I mean, we've, 
we've every year we've played an extremely tough schedule. Next year we got South Carolina and North Carolina on the schedule. So I mean, um, it's just part of uh, uh, of what we wanted to do when we made the move to FBS to be able to play those kind of teams. And you know, eventually we love to be able to you know where you're where you're beating those teams uh, on an annual annual basis, and that, that's going to continue to bolster our program. Yeah, Scott, you're pretty a matter of fact about it, but you're talking about the bluest of the blue bloods. You're talking about some major major powers. You first arrived at App State back in the early '90s. Did you have any idea that this would be a place where you would spend more than two decades of your life? And what has the school meant to you and your family? No, I, I remember the day, uh, August 3rd, 1991. I drove a little black pickup truck up here, a little Toyota, barely made it up the mountain, and uh, had no idea of what, what was in store for me for the next, you know, 20-some-odd years. And uh, But the whole time, I've just taken it day by day and tried to do the best job I could possibly do. I came here as a walk-on, ended up earning a scholarship, and, you know, ended up starting here as a as a quarterback, and, uh, and then just came back to coach in 1998, and the rest has been history. It's been awesome. Met my wife here, and we have three kids that are all in high school now. So it's been a tremendous ride. Uh, you couldn't have scripted it any better at a better place. Uh, and, again, I mentioned with the people. We have some outstanding people in this community that, that support our program, that have supported my family, too, throughout this whole tenure. And uh, you know, that's why it's been such a special place and been very fortunate to be here. I know in this, in this profession, you know, this is unheard of to be able to place this long. And, uh, so I'm just very fortunate and blessed to be able to stay in this, this place this long and to continue to have so much success. You know, we've had so much success. Everybody's, you know, your bullseye. Everybody's trying to take you down, and uh, we've continued to, to have success, and so hopefully we'll be able to do that some more. Scott Satterfield joining me for another moment or two. Of course, when you have the kind of success that you've had in a place like that, the phone's going to ring. And given that you've had so much joy in the area, given that you actually walked on there and you're in that scholarship, you played your ball there, you've had a great time, you just laid that out for us all, how do you go about handling the situation when the phone does ring? Do you owe it yourself to yourself to pick up the phone, and how are you approaching that? Well, you know, and I've said this many times that, that you know, obviously I love where I'm at, love what I'm doing here, and so if there's ever opportunities that that have, have come up, come about, and, and there have been opportunities, and so we always take the phone call and listen to what someone may say, and then and then we you know figure out what's going to be best for the, for us and the family, and uh, you know, so I'd much rather be this way than the other way when when you're getting called into the into AD's <laughs> office and saying, hey, listen, we got to make a change, you know, so. So we'd much rather be this way, and we just kind of take it in stride and very upfront and honest with it, and. Um, you know, but but for my whole focus is just to do the very best job I can possibly do, and then if anything does come across, you take a look at it and you just go on from there. All right. So last thought: one day at a time, one game at a time. You've got Georgia Southern coming up this week. That is a huge matchup. What is your biggest concern when it comes to the Eagles? Well, they, you know, a lot. I mean, they're they're a really good football team. They're six and one. We have to go down there on a short week. We just played Saturday. Now you have to play again on Thursday night, which is obviously difficult. Uh, they have a lot of team speed. Uh, they're running the football now um, back to like they used to do, just option attack. And then they just hired, um, in the offseason, they hired our safeties coach, who's now their defensive coordinator. So he knows his inside and out. So there's a lot of little backstories to this game. And um, But over the years, uh, since the 90s, we, this has been our biggest rival. And uh, every, it doesn't matter what the records are. You throw those records out, and it's going to be a, just a knockdown, drag-out type, type game. And it's going to be fun. It's fun to be a part of this game, that's for sure. Looking for a reason to watch Monday Night Football? Just go to my bookie. Remember, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. This is why I always tell people to bet with my bookie. Trust me, they are the very best bet this season. They have been in business for years, they have great reviews online, and their mobile site is so easy to use. I would only recommend a service to you that I've been using myself. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. They have in-game live betting, 
the most rewarding player perks in the business. And for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join right now, and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome and activate that offer. Visit my bookie online today. That's M Y B O O K I E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account, and you can claim up to one thousand in free play. You play, you win, you get paid with my bookie. There was something so crazy that took place on Saturday night that I can't not talk about it. And I'm going to need some room because what happened truly was amazing and spectacular. What I'm referring to is LeBron's home debut for the LA Lakers, but more specifically to the brawl that took place between the Lakers and the Rockets. Now, normally when I'm referring to a basketball brawl or a basket brawl, it's with air quotes because typically it's just a bunch of guys jawing, maybe some chest bumps, and a lot of dudes being held back. Dudes in the association typically do not want to go, which is good because these guys are gigantic and they're physical. And we know what happens when dudes that big with no pads or helmets know what they're doing and decide they do want to go and let their hands go. Faces get broken. So you don't want to see that. It's a good thing that generally in the association, dudes do not want to go. Except Saturday, dudes wanted to go. And while not a full-scale riot, as NBA fights go, that was pretty legit. Punches actually were thrown. Punches actually did land. And so did one finger jab to the face. Cats were getting ripped apart. Staples was all in and all about it. For whatever reason, in case you missed it, let me give you a sense of what went down. Here are a couple of quotes the players gave to The Athletic to give you an idea of how it was. Carmelo Anthony of the Rockets, quote, It was bull bleep, plain and simple, unacceptable. JaVale McGee, Lakers center, quote, I didn't see it personally, but I just saw it like everyone else saw it on Instagram. Mike D'Antoni, quote, I saw it from a distance. I wasn't getting into that. I had glasses on. I couldn't go in there, end quote. All right, so exactly what happened. What the hell happened Saturday night? The game had been getting pretty chippy, and then it went off. With over four minutes left in the fourth quarter, Houston was up by just one. James Harden gets a rebound off a LeBron miss, and he goes Harden with it coast to coast. Go ahead, let it roll. Here comes Houston into the front court. Harden down the middle. Harden all the way. Foul. Goes to the rim. No bass on the continuation. And all the Rockets are living in. Wow, Ingram just pushed James Harden in the face. And Ingram just lost his cool. And Lance Stevenson, of all people, goes in and saves Ingram from himself. My man John Ireland on the call. So Ingram did shove Harden for whatever reason and then argued with an official. He was separated from everybody. Things appeared to die down, except they didn't. Because while Ingram was up near midcourt, Chris Paul and Rajon Rondo were having words. And then those words became eye pokes and punches. Yeah, boy, that was a really dumb play by Ingram. Oh, now here's a fight. 
Here's Rondo going at it, and now they're throwing punches, Boy. and this is multiple ejections. And suspensions. This is multiple ejections, and Ingram and Carmelo are out at half court. Security people are out there trying to separate it. This is very ugly for a home opener, and Ingram has completely lost his cool. Harden is yelling at Ingram like, what's your problem? Yeah, like, what did I do? He's getting the calls when these guys are running into him, and that's what's frustrating him. And Chris Paul is mad. LeBron's in the middle of it. Chris Paul's got a bloody nose. The crowd is now chanting, and multiple ejections are coming here. You know why Chris Paul had a bloody nose? Because he got punched in the face. It, like I said, as association fights go, that was pretty legit. Paul landed that solid finger jab, and again, ask anybody, that's absolutely a reason to go. Somebody pokes you in the face? That's a reason to go. You poke Rondo in the face, Rondo's going to go. Rondo will go, and believe me, Rondo has gone over much less than that. Rondo landed a pretty clean shot on Paul's jaw, and Paul tried to counter. Again, not for show. Rondo was looking to knock CP3 the hell out, and Paul was not about to let that one go to the judges' scorecards either. He wanted to end Rondo himself, and he might have gotten the chance if his fellow banana boater, LeBron, did not come over and wrap him up. And then Melo grabbed Brandon Ingram, who came flying back in. Ingram probably thought, well, I started this whole thing. I might as well be the guy to finish it. And if it ended right there, you've already got yourself one of your crazier Laker nights in recent years. Except it did not end right there. It was not just on the court. According to The Athletic, CP3 told teammates that his wife and Rondo's significant other were jawing at each other in the stands as well. And then for hours around the league, there was a mystery and online as well. How'd that thing start? Who started that thing? Did Chris Paul start it when he poked Rondo in the eye? Or did Rondo spit at CP3? The Rockets were adamant about Rondo as a spitter. Rondo and the Lakers denied it. And for a while, there really was no definitive angle that could show spit flying from Rondo's mouth. Conspiracy theories abounded. Did CP3 make it up? Was Melo actually the spitter? And did he accidentally catch CP3 with some friendly fire? And then it surfaced. An 84-second slow-mo video in high res that appears to show a liquid of some sort flying from Rondo and hitting CP3. And it makes for pretty fascinating viewing. And don't get me wrong. Somebody spitting on somebody else is pretty disgusting. It is an official reason to go. A universally accepted reason to go. I've always said that. But don't take my word for it. Take Mello's. Mello told The Athletic, quote, You don't do that. You don't do that to nobody. In sports, on the streets, that's blatant, disrespectful, that's unacceptable. That's the first time in a long time I've agreed with something that came out of Melo's mouth. Or P.J. Tucker, who was on the show last week, and I generally do agree with him. He said, quote, you're a grown man. If somebody spits on you, it's crazy. It's over. There ain't nothing else to talk about. Nothing else to talk about. That's just the ultimate disrespect. Not even swinging is worse. Spitting on somebody is the ultimate. I can't disagree with that. Spitting is the ultimate. And if somebody spits on you, there really is nothing else to talk about. But what's crazier than the spitting incident and the ensuing fight? How about the Lakers crowd chanting Rondo's name? 
or Lance Stevenson being the peacemaker. You heard me. Mr. Born Ready was Mr. Born Peacemaker in that fight. And even that wasn't as crazy as some goofball in a weird outfit on the sideline getting ejected from Staples. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. That goofball in the weird outfit? That was Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Papers. Peppers. Hell, why not, right? Why the hell not? The only thing better than him getting ejected was the caption of the photo in USA Today, which read, Anthony Kiedis, lead singer of the band Red Hot Chili Peppers, is escorted off the floor after he yelled profanities at Houston Rockets guard Chris Paul. Not pictured. While he was being led off the floor after he was ejected from the fourth quarter of the game against the Lakers at Staples Center. My reaction to that. Damn right, Ant. Damn right. You let them know that you do not come into Staples and start something because if you do, the 55-year-old lead singer of a mid-90s band is going to start dropping F-bombs. Damn right, Ant. And now the aftermath. Ingram gets four games. Rondo gets three games. CP3 gets two games. Pretty interesting because if Rondo really did spit on CP3, and it looks like there was some sort of liquid that came flying from him and hit Paul. If that's true, three games is pretty light. Pretty, pretty light. But I have a question for you. <clears throat> Did that game give you enough to talk about? I'd say so. The Monday edition of the Daily Jungle is brought to you by Ferguson. Thursday's Daily Jungle is brought to you by Ferguson. Listen to this. No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, you can count on Ferguson. Sam Amick. Sam, it's great to have you back. How are you? Romy, doing great. Thanks for having me, brother. Sam, it's so good to have you back, especially after a game like that. I mean, I could talk to you for an hour or more about this. I won't, but I could. So you were there Saturday <laughs> night, and that was LeBron's yeah. regular season home debut. Sam, start right there. What was the atmosphere in the arena like, and what kind of a game were you expecting? It was crazy. I mean, nobody knows the entertainment side like the Lakers and Lakerland and Staples. And so, you know, you, know, you, you were going to have the celebs, and you were going to have that element. But it was on a different level. Um, you know, it's funny. I saw Jimmy Iovine of, you know, of, of musical fame and Dr. Dre fame, and, and I'm looking at him, and, and it, Rajon Rondo had a quote about how playing with LeBron was like being with the, one of the Beatles back in the day. And I'm looking at Jimmy, and I'm thinking, you know, Jimmy's one of the only dudes in the whole building who could actually make that comparison. He used to work with John Lennon. And, and you know, those are the kinds of, you know, things in the context that we're talking about here. So the, the vibe was on a different level. Um, and you're sitting there trying to analyze – who LeBron is going to be with the Lakers, what it means, where they're going, and kind of how it's all going to unfold. Obviously, none of us, though, saw this whole thing just going crazy like it did. Sam Amick joining us. Very well said. Now, you had a great piece up in The Athletic detailing everything that went down. First off, you just said that we couldn't have seen what was going to happen. But before we get to the fourth quarter, did you get a sense, though, that something could happen, that there might be a fight, that there was some chippiness? Was it building to something? Yeah, there's, so there was definite chippiness and if I had to drill down on one play that I've since learned even more about and I wish I, I think it was second quarter but you know at one point Chris Paul is driving on the right side Rondo in transition trying to guard him and I don't know if you remember it Romy but you know Chris chucks him 
pretty pretty hard going to the rim, and Rondo goes flying, and it ends up you know no whistle. Chris finishes the play, and he looks in the direction of Floyd Mayweather as he goes back down the other way on the court, and he gives it the old flex, which you know Chris will do that every once in a while. But then he gives it like a second flex. I mean, he was just feeling the moment how he had overpowered Rondo. And he even made like the push-up motion, which my interpretation was he's basically saying like Rajon needs to hit the weight room. And from what I've heard since then, like that play really set Rondo off. And on the bench, he just, from that point on, he would not stop talking to Chris, just chirping at him like crazy. You know, that one obviously got Rajon in a different place. Talking to Sam Mamick. All right, so that's some really good information, some new information right there. What about the two of these guys, Sam? They've also got some history, right? Yeah, they do for sure. I mean, there's, you know, about a decade-long kind of, you know, just rivalry, if you want to call it that, or just kind of championess and tension. You got two guys that, for a lot of their careers, were essentially fighting for kind of their place in the point guard hierarchy within the NBA and, and two very different resumes, right? Like, you got Rajon, who if, if you look at Rondo's career through the Chris Paul filter, and these are the kinds of you know trash talking that would go on over the years, Chris would characterize it as you know Rajon kind of getting lucky and finding his way into Boston, getting a ring that way, you know playing with Hall of Famers, the type of talent that Chris typically hasn't had around him in his career. You know that is how Chris would get under Rajon's skin, and then coming the other way, you know Rondo would sit there and basically just point to his ring and, and rub that in Chris's face. So that's the kind of dynamic they've had. You know, they had Team USA experiences in 2008 where Chris got a roster spot that Rajon wanted. Um, other stuff, 2009, they had words after a uh, New Orleans-Boston game. So this is definitely a, a long time running. I was going to say, this is a long time coming. Sam Amick joining yeah. us on the program. So, Sam, the Rockets were adamant. They were adamant that Rondo spit on Paul. Based on your review of the video, do you think that he spit on Paul? I, I do. I mean, the only qualifier that I would make is that you can't judge. If you want to quibble or, you know, debate intent and have Rajon, I mean, at some point he's got to talk again. And then the question will become, you know, to what degree are you going to claim this was intentional or not? Um, I'm looking at this video yesterday, and this is not just the grainy, you know, the brooder footage that we had on Twitter. This was a 200 megabyte video file that was shared with me and this was the actual video that the NBA investigated and it's funny Romy I got a new laptop recently with a high res screen and I'm looking at this thing and it's just like crystal clear and you slow it down and you know Rajon looks at Chris and it's kind of downward but you got spit or spittle coming out of his mouth and landing on Chris and and if you talk to players around this league Across the board, they'll just say, like, once that happens, once you go down that road, like, it's a wrap. You know, P.J. Tucker told me that spitting for players is worse than swinging. Like, they'd rather just go ahead and haul off on me than let's fight. If you spit on me, I'm never going to forget that. Sam, I agree. I think if you talk to human beings on this planet, they would tell you the same thing. You spit in somebody's face, that's a reason to go. We always talk about that on the program. So, Sam, that being said, if in fact he did it and the intent was there, the league announced the discipline yesterday. Ingram gets four games, Rondo gets three, Paul gets two. Do you feel like those punishments fit the various crimes? You know, the only, I mean, for one, you got two debates here. I, I, I tend to think the league was too soft across the board because. My fear 
going forward would be that players I'm now looking at this calculus, and if you're a player who's upset with another player on the court, I know it's a ton of money. And the NBA is always trying to highlight the fact that, okay, well, Chris Paul lost X amount, and Rondo lost this much. And, yeah, it's a lot of money, but they make a ton of money, right? And so, to me, the games is the more important thing. If you're a player and you just really want to give it to this dude and maybe actually go over the line and fight with him on the court, you're now thinking about, am I willing to lose two games? As a, a competitor, can I handle being sidelined for two games? And I think some guys might actually think the answer is yes. You know, this is much different than Carmelo Anthony getting 15 games. Uh, and, you know, last time we had a big situation like this, I think 2009, whenever that was, you know, there's a pretty wide gap between the discipline that was levied. So that's one of the debates. The other one, you know, specific to this situation, I would probably argue that, that Chris Paul should have gotten one game, in my opinion. I think. You know, he's the guy who got spit on, and then he put a finger in Rondo's face, but he didn't punch. You know, Rajon was the first one swinging. I know for a fact, you know, Chris, his family, his people, the Rockets, they, they definitely think that he should have gotten one instead of two. Sam Mamick joining us for a couple more moments. All right, Sam, before you go, you've got another fascinating piece up on The Athletic about Jeannie Buss and how she was able to get LeBron, Kobe Bryant, and a Game of Thrones play a role in this. How so? So I sit down with Jeannie a little while back trying to recap everything that led up to them getting LeBron. Uh, we're sitting in her office, and, and as a reporter, it's always a fun moment when somebody just kind of says something that you didn't know before. And so that happens. Jeannie says, as we're, you know, it's about an hour-long interview conversation, and she says, well, you know, as I was trying to figure out what to do with the front office with Jim Buss and, and Mitch Kupchak still running it, I, I couldn't make up my mind, and so I had to go see Kobe. And so then, the, you know, for me, I was like, wait a minute. Like, I, don't, I haven't heard this story. Like, all right, so tell me about it. So she gets on the road to go down to Newport Beach, meets with him at a restaurant near his house, and they sit there chopping it up about, all right, they had already hired Magic Johnson as an advisor, but he was not the guy running the show yet. And Kobe essentially tells her, he pulls out the Game of Thrones reference and, and says, you got to channel your, your mother of dragons and be Khaleesi, you know, for the fans of the show. And you got to go for the kill, and you got to go all the way. I mean, Kobe's strategy, his philosophy, his ethos is, you know, they're going to get you if you don't get them. And so he kind of pushes Jeannie over the edge when it comes to the way she was going to handle the situation. It's important because LeBron's people confirmed that he would not have come if they had not cleaned house and had a clean slate by the time, you know, he was trying to make his free agency decision. So. That's the, uh, the part that Kobe played. That's pretty badass. One last thought. She also said that she went to school on what happened with <clears throat> Phil Jackson in New York. Sam, what did she learn from that whole experience? So, and, and this is one where you're certainly going to get differing opinions. I mean, there's a lot of folks, you know, who just look at Phil and say that he was largely to blame for the way that went down. But I think her point is that within the kind of the internal uh, world of the Knicks, you know, operation, you still have a lot of people who have been there for a long time and are tied to James Dolan uh, and, and have differing loyalties. So if you're somebody like Phil Jackson coming in, I think your point was that he learned the hard way that, that you know, when things weren't going perfectly, he didn't have the kinds of allies around him that he could have benefited from. And, and that's kind of, it's, it's essentially a discussion on work culture. And so for her, uh, I mean, honestly, Romy, Going like going to meet her in her office, and I'll make this quick. But like, she we used to go get coffee all the time, and I didn't really realize it at the time. About once or twice a year, we'd get coffee off the premises, 
And I didn't realize until we met in her office that part of it was that because she didn't feel totally comfortable with the environment internally, she would prefer to meet different people outside because the eyes and ears were always there. And, and that's where Lakerland has changed, where she's trying to have everything be healthier with her at the top, making the calls, trying to turn this thing around. Purdue, 49, Ohio State, 20. Buckeye fan, that is an L that even Herb cannot delete. Herb cannot have one of his assistants go into his phone and delete that beatdown the way he did all those text messages that he had that he did not want people to see. For the second straight season, Ohio State went on the road and got hammered by an unranked Big Ten team. Last year, it was Iowa laying a 31-point beating on a Buckeye team that rolled over. This year, it's Purdue flexing out and running it the hell up. That's a 29-point win for Jeff Brom's crew. And that moves them one game over 500. One game over 500. And there was nothing fluky about that at all. Purdue had 539 yards of total offense. They ran for over five and a half yards a carry. They won the turnover battle. They had less penalties. They made fewer errors. And they made house call after house call in the fourth quarter. Four touchdowns of over 40 yards in the fourth quarter alone, turning a one-score game in the second half into a straight-up blowout. Capped off by Marcus Bailey's pick six that nearly burnt. Russ aid to the ground. Steps up in the pocket, throws, and that's intercepted. Marcus Bailey at the 30, the 20, the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Marcus Bailey! Exclamation point, Boilermakers! Boilermakers Radio from Learfield. And forget for one minute what that means to the college football landscape. Just focus on what it means in Columbus. Namely, their playoff chances. Done. Win out and win the Big Ten title probably doesn't even matter. You're not winning a resume contest when you've got a 29-point loss on yours to a team that got beaten by Eastern Michigan. An utter disaster for Ohio State. Dwayne Hoskins threw the ball 73 times in a loss. The Buckeyes ran it for 76 yards. The most electric player on the field was not on the team that recruits better than anybody not named Alabama. It was Purdue wide receiver Rondale Moore who lit the Buckeyes secondary on fire with 12 receptions, 170 yards, and a couple of scores. I mean, that was such a disaster for Herb that I half expect Ohio State's PR team to release a statement later on today clarifying what Ohio State really wanted to say on Saturday night. Instead of jogging out onto the field as the number two team in the country and absolutely messing the bed, and maybe even the entire Big Ten shot at a spot in the playoffs, because that's how big of a mess the Buckeyes just made. They were so terrible that they might have even taken Michigan's chances at a playoff berth with them. Because the Wolverines need a win over a good Ohio State team. They need an impressive win over a good Ohio State team and not the crew that rolled over against Purdue. You know, great. Harbaugh maybe finally gets this monkey off his back. But then again, if he does, who even cares? What's it really say? You know, great. You beat Ohio State. 
oh, yeah, that same Ohio State team that got hammered by Purdue by 29. In other words, not that impressive. And never mind you can throw their records out when they meet. Not if you lose to Purdue by 29, you can't. So old Harbs and Big Blue, they went out, they handled their business on Saturday in East Lansing. They won that rock fight with Big Brother. Brother. They held Sparty to 79 yards total offense. They got just enough offense of their own from Shea Patterson. No, they didn't exactly class it up when Devin Bush is out there in pregame trying to rip up the Michigan State logo with his cleats. But hey, I would tell Michigan to act like they've been there before, but they haven't. Not under Jim Harbaugh, they haven't. Bottom line, chaos in the Big Ten. Herb is out there coaching like a dude who wants to take some unexpected time off that he can spend with his family. Coach Khaki is acting like he's won more than two rivalry games in Ann Arbor, and it's not even November, and you can already hear the jockeying for playoff positions starting up. Ohio State did not handle their business. Far from it. Now they're out. Now we wait to see if Harbaugh can do what he's paid Hellify Jack to do, beat his rival. And if his rival is getting beaten by Purdue by 29, this guy's got no excuse whatsoever not to roll over Ohio State. Purdue just did. No excuse. No excuse for Harbaugh at this point, and even less of an excuse for Ohio State to have happened what just happened to them. You're number two in the nation. You've got a national championship right there in the crosshairs, and to not only lose, but to get beaten down again by another unranked team in conference, just like last year. Why does that keep happening, Herb? Why does that keep happening? Hey, listen. Ohio State sucks. I don't even say that. Lendale White did back in the day. I don't even say that. But then I didn't need to. Pete Prisco is my guest. Pete, great to have you on. How are you? What's up, Romy? How are you? Good, good. Pete, how are you? How are things? I'm great. I'm great. All right, so a ton to talk about coming out of the weekend, as long as you're great. But I've got to start with Jacksonville. Pete, you are a Jacksonville legend. Let me start right there. What do you think when you watch the Jags right now? What's going through your mind as you see them play the way they are? Well, I think offensively, obviously, you know, it starts with Blake Bortles. He's not playing very well. But, I mean, in fairness to Blake Bortles, he's one of those quarterbacks that needs everything around him to go right for him to succeed. They are down their top receiver, Mark Easley. They lost Austin Safari and Jenkins, the tight end. they down to a third-team left tackle who shouldn't even be on the field right now. Uh, and Leonard Fournette hasn't played but maybe a half the entire season, a little more than a half the entire season. So in fairness to Bortles, uh, he's very limited in what he has around him. Guys are dropping passes all over the place, but he needs to play better. I mean, he, he when things go bad, he seems to go off the cliff and, and quickly. And I think you saw that yesterday. Didn't throw any interceptions, but he turned it over twice by fumbling. Uh, and that trickles over to the defense, Jim. And I think those guys on the other side of the ball get frustrated. Pete Prisco joining us. I was going to say, Pete, I guess in that sense, I mean, they are banged up right now. It shouldn't be a great surprise, I don't think, that Blake Bortles is struggling. But what about that defense? That defense was thought to be one of the best, if not the best, in the league earlier this year. Why are they struggling? How come they can't get off the field? Well, a lot of those guys, uh, you know, when you look at it, I thought Jalen Ramsey would take his game to a new level. He hasn't. I thought Miles Jack would become Ray Lewis-like, and he hasn't. He's been good, but he hasn't been to that level. Telvin Smith's play has uh, regressed. The, the pass rushers haven't been what they expected. They're not winning in one-on-one situations. And they faced the Texans' defensive offensive line last week. They gave up seven sacks to the Bills, and they had one. 
I mean, they were Saxonville last year, and they can't get enough pressure on the quarterback, and that's a problem. But I think yesterday wasn't so bad for the defense. I mean, they gave up two point-blank touchdowns on those Bortles turnovers. Other than that, they played pretty well. But then you have the frustration, Jim. I mean, you know, and everybody says, oh, the guys are fighting in the locker room. That's nothing new. I mean, it's guys that happens all the time. But I'll go back to, you know, everybody said, well, if Tom Coughlin was around to coach and that wouldn't happen. What happened with this team at halftime of the championship game in 1999? Reggie Barlow fumbled the punt, and there was a fight in the locker room at halftime. Fist fight. Guys went after each other. So it happens more than people think. It just doesn't get out a lot. P. Prisco joining us. So one more thought about the Jags. They go to London. They take on the defending world champs in Philadelphia, who let a 17-point fourth-quarter lead get away. How important is that game then, Pete, for both of those teams? Yeah, you can't go to five losses. That's going to be tough to get out from under. So it's almost an elimination game for both teams. And, you know, Philadelphia is a little bit different. I think they're suffering from the Super Bowl hangover. But when you look at it on the surface, None of their, a lot of their players haven't taken their game to the next level, or at least to the level they played out a year ago. So it is a big game, and I know London's looking at it thinking it was going to be a major marquee game, but again, they got two teams with losing records are probably disappointed at that. But look at it this way, London. You got yourself a mini playoff game, I think. Pete Prisco joining us. Now, Pete, changing topics. You've been driving the Patrick Mahomes bandwagon pretty much from day one, and you wrote that you expected him to be the best quarterback in the 2017 draft. Obviously, you got that big arm, but there are lots of guys who come into the league with a big arm only to crash out. What did you see in him that made you think that he'd be the force that he is in the NFL or a potential force? Well, I think, you know, when you looked at him, he, A, he loved the game. And, and all the little flaws, and mechanical flaws, and playing in the spread offense, they were teachable. You could get him out of that. And, and I think that's what Andy Reid has done. His footwork was, wasn't great when he was coming out of Texas Tech, and it's better. It's improved. He's still, you know, a little bit of a wild stallion when he gets outside the pocket and makes plays, but you don't ever want to take that away from him. Remember, Favre was a lot like that, and, and Favre was able to get outside the pocket and make a ton of big throws. The difference is, Favre used to fit it into tight windows. This guy doesn't have to. The way they're scheming up things, he's got a lot of wide-open receivers, and he, he knows where to go with the football. He's accurate. He's smart. He sees things at the line of scrimmage. Uh, he's a gym rat. And, and, you know, I went there in May and spent time with him. And, and one of the things I, I was talking to Andy Reid, I said, you know, he reminds me of Favre in the way he throws the football and stuff. And I said, but Favre threw a lot of interceptions. And Andy looked over at me and he said, yeah, but he also threw a ton of touchdown passes, too. And that's the way they're playing with Patrick Mahomes. Pete Prisco is my guest. Now, as good as he is, as amazing as that offense is with all the weaponry they have, how much of a concern is that Chiefs defense? Oh, it's a concern. No question about it. I thought they were better against the Bengals last night. They, you know, they got after the quarterback. And, and if they get their pass rushers going, you know, D Ford has shown up this year and looked really, really good. I think Houston, you know, he's missed time with injuries. If he gets back playing again, you know, if you play with the lead, it's a lot easier to go after the quarterback, and, and that's ideally what they want to do. Get a lead, throw the football around, and then turn their pass rushers loose. They also need to get Eric Berry back in the lineup, hopefully at some point. They will get better on defense. It's never going to be a dominant defense, but they will improve. So, Pete, let me connect the Jags and the Chiefs by asking you this. A lot of teams had the chance to take Patrick Mahomes in the draft before Kansas City got him. How different are the Jags right now if they took Mahomes instead of Leonard Fournette? Well, a lot of people say, well, would they have you know, allowed the growth to happen? Or would they have forced him in there and, and played him right away and, and had problems with him you know, 
learning the offense. I think, you know, situations help guys. I'm a big believer you play guys right away, but it seems to have worked out for him in Kansas City. But you don't draft a running back fourth overall. The value isn't there. And people will say, well, look at Todd Gurley. And I ask them this. If you had to take one or two guys off the Rams roster for the postseason, you could take Jared Goff off or you could take Todd Gurley off. Which one are you taking off? Mm-hmm. Clearly, you're taking Todd Gurley off. And that tells you the importance of the quarterback position. When you don't have the position solved, you've got to keep trying to solve it. And Jacksonville should have taken Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson rather than a running back at number four. You know, I was going to ask you that. You just covered that right there. So the Rams, Peter, the only undefeated team left in the NFL right now, obviously a ton of talent at the skill positions of offense. We know that. How much of their success, though, is about their offensive line? You nailed it. You are spot on 100% on that. And, and you know, that gets overlooked. We love their, their, the way they dress up things and the way they play aggressively and, and all Sean McVay's play calling and the improvement of Jarek off. But the biggest difference in that Rams team is that front. And this is a league where offensive line play is awful for the most part. It's regressed a great deal. They don't have time to teach the techniques anymore. Uh, college linemen come in playing spread. But you look at the Rams' offensive line across the board – Whitworth is playing great again at left tackle. The right tackle, Havenstein's one of the most underrated players in the league. Uh, John Sullivan's a smart, savvy veteran on the inside. But the biggest difference for the Rams this year are the guards. Saffold at left guard and Austin Blythe at right guard are having outstanding years, and they move people off the ball. They're smart. They're creative. They know how to use the angles. Uh, they are one of the best, if not the best, offensive line in the league right now. All right, so Peter, if they're that good up front, and they've got that kind of weaponry also offensively. We know Bum Phillips, he's got that defense coming together. They have to gel. They're going to have time. They'll only get better. In your mind, are the Rams the team to beat right now? Yes, but they have a couple issues that bother me still. One being they, they're not great against the run, and that's been a problem all season long on defense. As good as those guys are on the inside, you know, Sue and Donald. Donald was fantastic on Sunday. They're not great at stopping your run. And then, the, you know, his defense, Phillips' defense, is predicated on getting edge rush pressure. They don't have that. They can get pressure with Donald. And he was dynamic again with four sacks on Sunday. And Sue can push the pocket. But at some point, you're going to need that edge pressure. And usually that shows up when you get to, you know, December and January. You need sack, fumble, game over. And Donald can produce that, but you also need guys coming off the edge. You meant to say son of bum, Wade, not bum. We're joined by Pete Prisco for a few more moments. Pete, i got to get your thoughts before you go. What did you make of Mike Vrabel's decision to go for two late against the Chargers? Do you like the aggressiveness and the confidence, or is there such a thing as being a little too aggressive and too confident in that situation? I think you're too aggressive in that situation. A couple weeks ago, he went for it. Uh, late in the game, and I liked it. I liked that decision, and it ends up being the win against the Eagles. I was all for that one. But in this situation, kick your extra point and go for two. I mean, instead of going for two, kick your extra point and go to overtime. They had been the better team in the second half of that game. So why not carry that momentum over, go to overtime, and take your chances? I didn't like the play call A to go for it. I didn't like the call to throw the slant to Taewon Taylor there uh, in the end zone. But, you know, you heard Bruce Arians on the broadcast say, Live to go another day. That's what I would have done. I don't like the aggressive play in that situation. Mm. So, Pete, tonight you've got the Giants at the Falcons. Given how both of these teams have played so far, what kind of a game are you expecting tonight? First one to 30 wins. How's that? <laughs> I mean, because I think you look at the Falcons' defense, it's been awful. You look at the Giants, they've had all kinds of issues on defense as well, and Eli Manning's taken a beating. But there's a lot of weapons in this game. And Matt Ryan's having a phenomenal year. He has to because his defense is so bad. But on the other side of the ball, you got Barkley, who's been phenomenal running the football, catching the football. And then you got Odell Beckham, who, you know, was called out by his owners last week. I think he needs to get it picked up, and he will. So I think a lot of points tonight, high scoring. 
Probably close field goal game, but I think the Falcons win it. All right, senior NFL columnist for CBSSports.com, also a member of the Pick 6 NFL podcast. Of course, Pete Prisco, our guest. Pete, great to have you back. Thanks so much for doing it. Anytime, Jim. You know that. Good night now!